have a bit of a Bible challenge for you this morning. If you brought a Bible with you, that, that's great. If not, there's some under the uh, seats in front of you, or maybe you have it on an electronic device. Uh, there's also free Bibles in the back of the auditorium at an information table if you don't own a Bible. Love for you to pick one up on your way out this morning. They're, they're there for you if you don't own a Bible. So here's the Bible challenge for you. Um, it'll be the challenge to keep up with me this morning. We're going to be in Revelation 19 and Revelation chapter 4. We're going to kind of hem the two together, and here's the reason why. In the last several weeks, we've been looking at who Jesus is, and we began by looking at John 1.1 and talking about how God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, in agreement, in eternity past, determined that God the Son would become Jesus the man. And we began the framework around understanding His eternal dwelling. And the last week we looked specifically and got to this point where we saw a man kill God, and we saw a man bury God, and then we saw God burst forth from the grave. However, it's very incomplete if your last image is only the resurrection. That would not be a complete picture, and so we want to look at Jesus in His reigning position this morning. And so thus, Revelation 4 and Revelation 19, and we'll hem these two together. Maybe you were here nine years ago when we went through the book of Revelation, and some of this will be familiar to you, but chances are a good portion of us weren't. And so this will help you in really viewing Jesus in this way because of this reason. When we really absorb who Jesus is, when we really process it in our mind, not who we want him to be. When we really understand who Jesus is, it will change you. It will change how you live. It'll change how you love. It'll change how you interact. It'll change your daily habits when you really see him for who he really is. So to begin with, we need to understand a major characteristic that's declared about Jesus the man, which is very true of God the Son because they're one and the same. This major characteristic is found declared in Matthew 7, 29. I want you to see it with me. It says this, he spoke as one who had authority. What that means is Jesus can and does back up everything that he says. If you agree with that, say amen this morning. He can do everything he says he will do, and he does do everything that he says he will do. That's especially important if you're going through times of trauma in your life. And if you're not right now, you probably have in the past or you will in the future. So if he says, I'm with you, I will never leave you. If he says, I've got you. If he says, I've rescued you for eternity. If he says, I've forgiven your sins. You want to know that this one who has authority can and does back up what he says he will do. Well, this word authority in the Greek language is one of the first words in your notes this morning. You might want to pull those out, maybe to keep track. There's going to be a lot of verses coming your way that might help you to write them down in, in the notes that are in your bulletin. We went through 15 minutes of Q&A in the last service afterwards. If you haven't been to nine before, we do Q&A after that service, and maybe you'd be interested and be part of that. But you want to write down some of these things. Here's one of them that you might want to pay attention to, this word exousia. This is the word authority in the Greek language. And it's got more than just authority behind it in the way that we think of it in the English language. It's talking about competency here. It's talking about somebody who has some force behind him, capacity, meaning this one can do things when he says he will do things. Just a survey this morning. Have you ever said you would do something that you didn't do? Right? We do that. I do that. We determine that we'll put away a certain amount of money by a certain date, or we'll lose a certain amount of weight by a certain time, 
or we'll really dedicate ourselves to our studies and I'll get this homework done by this date. We say things all the time that we can't back up or sometimes don't back up. And it plays out in many areas in our life like weight loss and financial management and our daily habits and even our exercise. So we think of ourselves as failing in some areas. Well, even the people that we regard in humanity as being super capable can't back up the things that they say. One of those individuals that we looked to in the past in the 1970s, 1960s was Muhammad Ali because he was a powerful boxer. In the boxing world, he was known as Superman and he called himself Superman quite often. Well, in 1980, he was at the peak, the pinnacle of his public career. He was touring around, visiting a lot of places. He was done boxing mostly, but he was still lecturing a lot of places. And he found himself on an airplane. And he's flying first class, and he's going from Washington, D.C. to New York State. And he sat down in his seat and settled in, and all the bells ring on the plane, letting everybody know they're about ready for takeoff. Well, he hasn't put a seatbelt on yet. And the flight attendant walks up to him and says, uh, Mr. Ali, um, you need to put your seatbelt on. Now, Muhammad Ali was known for very quick wit and a sharp tongue, and so he quickly replied, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the flight attendant, who had an equally quick wit, quickly replied to him, Superman don't need no airplane either, put on a seatbelt. <laughs> we make claims all the time we can't back up. He'd love to not need an airplane, but he needed an airplane. Well, this is not the way we should be viewing God. God can back up his claims. Look with me on the screen what he says about himself. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? That verse is especially important to you if you're going through tough times. God's there for you. He says, I'm there for you and I will do what I say I will do. So this issue of authority is a pretty big deal because we're told Jesus had that kind of authority. He spoke as one who had authority, but he also acted as one who had authority. Now, interestingly, when you go back to the first century and even before then, going back millennia before that, this issue of authority was a challenging point for the rabbis of their time because it was reserved for only the greatest of the rabbis to be able to determine with authority certain points of Scripture. So when things in the Bible popped up, it said like, thus saith the Lord, it was up to only to the very greatest rabbis to be able to interpret that and tell the people what was being communicated. Those were the individuals who had exousia, or the Hebrew word shmika. I'll show you that one in just a minute. So let me give you an example of this. It says this in Mark eleven twenty eight, 28, and speaking of Jesus, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority, by what exousia are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority, exousia or shmika? I want you to see the word shmika on the screen. It's also in your notes this morning, but this is the Hebrew form of laying on the hands. If, if you were in church back in June, um, we installed a new pastor here, and he's in the executive pastor role, Jeff Schneider. And when we installed Jeff into that role, you saw elders on the platform gather around him and lay hands on him. That's shmika. That's the transferring of authority to a person. Well, this is exactly what you find in the New Testament and in the Old Testament to authorize someone by laying on of hands. So here's what the leaders are doing to Jesus. 
These aren't run-of-the-mill people who are just walking on the street challenging Jesus. These are the religious elite. They're the executives of the nation. And they're challenging him by saying, where did you get your authority? What entitles you to do what you're doing? In other words, it sounds like this. Who dared to give you authorization? They don't like Jesus. They don't like what he's doing. They're wondering, where is it coming from? How do you get to do these things? So as you read Matthew's account of this and Mark's account of this and Luke's account of this, what you find is that Jesus entered into a riddle conversation with them. And he essentially says, I'll tell you if you tell me something. So watch how he challenges them on the screen, Matthew 21, 24. Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what shmika, by what exousia, by what authority I do these things. Now here's the setting. Jesus challenges them about John the Baptist. John's a powerful individual. And he says to them in a riddle form, where did John get his authority from? Now, they step off to the side. Next few verses, we won't go into it, but this is essentially what's going on. They say, well, if we say his authority came from heaven, he's going to say, why didn't we listen to John? But if we say his authority came from man, well, then the people are going to rebel because they see John as a prophet. So they come back to Jesus, they go center stage, and they say this to him in verse 27, answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. He also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now imagine you have an answer to the Bible and somebody comes up to you with a Bible answer question and you say, yeah, I know the answer, but I'm not going to tell you. What? Why? Well, in this case, they didn't really want to know the response. They really were looking just to challenge Jesus' authority his exousia, where does it come from? And why is this so important to you this morning that we would take 20 minutes to a half hour to study this? Because with this same exousia, he says to you, I will forgive your sins. He says to you, I will welcome you into eternity one day. He says to you, you will live with me forever. That's pretty important. That's a great reason to know where his authority comes from, and you want to have confidence in that authority. So that's why we're going to very lightly step into Revelation this morning. Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation 19, and here's Revelation 4, just an excerpt from it. It says this in verse 2, part A. Behold, a throne was standing in heaven. Now, mind you, John's got a, a view of the control room of the universe, when you're logically thinking of authority as it relates to God, you're thinking of his throne. And so you're therefore thinking of his throne room. Well, John's got a view of that in the book of Revelation. He writes about the throne room and he shares that view with us because God wanted him to write it down. So the first thing he says in verse two is, behold. And it's a biblical word which simply means astonishing. In modern language, you might say in 2019, Wow, this is unbelievable what I'm seeing here. Now, I'm not sure what you think of or what you envision when you think of God's throne, but you need to be thinking of a theocracy, not a democracy. In the United States, we have a democracy. We're used to multiple rulers. We're used to ruling parties. We're used to individuals who habitate Congress. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that God's reigning kingdom is a theocracy, meaning there's no Congress. 
meaning there's no Democrats and there's no Republicans. I'm just waiting for the amen. Right? There's no warring factions. There's no arguments. There's no libertarians. There's no Green Party. There's no nuns in the sense that I'm not belonging to anything. I am none of those. God says there's a theocracy. And so in a theocracy, one person, one individual controls all of government. Now on earth, if you heard that, you might be thinking, well, that sounds like a potentate. That sounds like a dictator or a king. Well, let's face it, you and I have a degraded view of kings. When we think of kings, we think of kings on earth. And so if I asked you, when you think of the king of rock and roll, you would say very quickly, who? Elvis, right? Or if I asked you the king of the court, you might say LeBron James. Or if I asked you about burgers, you might say the Burger King, right? Degraded view. We degrade it because of the way we use the term. So if you take the all-powerful one, all decision-making, all judgment, and rest that with one supreme authority, you'd call that one God. Watch where this goes. Part B, verse 2. The throne was standing in heaven, and one is sitting on the throne. One sitting on the throne. Standing in heaven is a really important term. Michael's piano bench is on the stage. It's a place where you would sit, but you would never think of it as a throne in this way. You could pick up the piano bench and walk away with it. You could pick up a folding chair and walk away with it. The throne is standing. In this case, standing means permanent, fixed, unmovable. It's not a folding chair, meaning there's no change with it. It's unalterable. And it's everything that God does there is unalterable. So this king is in complete control, and that there is a throne means this. It means there's absolutes, absolutes that cannot and will not be altered regardless of what man wants it to do. And it's guaranteed by the authority of that throne, and nothing you do and nothing I do and nothing all of culture does can alter them. We might think that sounds really intolerant, like God won't bend in any way whatsoever. Well, there's other areas where we recognize there's no bending. We recognize within the world of science, there's absolutes. Physicians operate within the laws of science. They operate within the laws of medicine. They have to discover those laws and work within that framework. All scientists have to do that. Not just within medicine, we have to do that within gravity. We have to do that within the law of thermodynamics. We have to do that in many areas. So when we begin thinking of God's throne, we begin thinking of moral absolutes because God's methods cannot be altered no matter how far society might drift. God says he never drifts. Look with me on the screen at this promise from God, Malachi 3.6. For I, the Lord, do not change. There's one to write down. Or here's another one. James 1.17, speaking of God the Father. With him, there's no variation or shifting shadows. So God maintains his law by the authority of his throne, and I hope you find that really comforting this morning, not threatening. Isn't it comforting to know that there's some things that never change, even when you're in a world of change? That's your God. He's immovable, and he's permanent. Go with me back to verse 2 in part C. It says this, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and he's beginning to describe the occupant of this throne. 
He who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. See, he who was sitting, now this is the word horaderos, and it's in your notes this morning. The king is on the throne of the universe, which tells me that random chance doesn't govern things, but God governs things, and he's in this posture of reigning. So let it be known as you go forward, there is a throne, it's fixed, and God is on his throne. And we're told in chapter 4, he looks like a jasper stone. What is that? And he looks like a sardius in appearance. What jasper, we understand, is like a diamond or a crystal, crystal in its appearance. In other words, it refracts light. This is really important as part of the description John's giving us here. Move forward with me in Revelation 21.11, and this is consistent with the description you find of the city that you will inhabit one day. One day you will be in the heavenly city, and we're told this is what it looks like. The brilliance of the holy city Jerusalem is the brilliance of the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Now, following along with that, we're also told he's like a sardius stone. What's that? It's ruby red. It's fiery bright, and it speaks of the blazing nature of the wrath of God. This is consistent with the Old Testament imagery of him. Ezekiel chapter 1, it records it this way, the blazing light, the f like fire coming out from the throne. So check it. We've got this king enthroned. He's amidst sparkling light, flaming color, and he's refracting an unbelievable brilliance, and we're beginning to learn who Jesus really is here. Now watch Revelation 4 as it goes a step further. It says this, there's a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Well, what's an emerald? Well, that's green, right? And some of you are thinking MSU right now, like, wow, green around the throne. How great is that? He says it's like an emerald here. And it's encircling in its brilliance. Well, this is really consistent with the Old Testament too. In Ezekiel chapter 1, we're told about the description of the appearance of God. Watch this. And there was a radiance around him as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, well, he did what you will do. He fell on his face. Genesis chapter 9 tells us about the rainbow of God and how God owns the rainbow. And that it's a reflection of his imagery. God says it's a reflection of his faithfulness, it's a reflection of his mercy, it's a reflection of his grace, and so he says, I'm going to take my bow that surrounds my throne and I'm going to set it on earth as a reminder to everybody that even though I destroyed the earth with a flood, I will never do that again. As a reminder for you of my mercy, of my faithfulness, of my compassion, of my mercy. So we've got this bow, and at the very center of the throne, we see this ruby red which reminds us of the holy wrath, but surrounding it is this beautiful hue of faithfulness and it appears like emerald green at first to John. What's this telling you? You've got God with wrath, but it's not at the expense of his faithfulness. In other words, judgment does not overrule promise. The two go together. God's attributes operate in perfect balance together. In other words, his mercy doesn't outweigh his wrath, and his wrath doesn't outweigh his mercy. If it did, he'd be less than God. He's 100% all of these attributes. So God's on his throne, and you've got this distinct group surrounding the throne in verse 4. We won't get into it this morning, but watch what verse 5 says. 
Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Well, that sounds really familiar because you think of the book of Exodus when the people go to Mount Sinai and Moses is with them. And what do they hear? They hear the thunder rolling down from Mount Sinai. What do they feel? The ground shaking as Mount Sinai crumbles before them. And it's flowing out from God's presence. And then this in verse 6. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had the face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. So John's really struggling to describe this. You see him using the word like over and over and over again. We arrived here this morning after you had breakfast, and maybe you drank some coffee, you choked it down, you rushed out the door, and you arrive at church, and you walk right into Revelation 19, and your mind's going, what? What am I being hit with here? Well, imagine John, he's seeing it, he's right in the setting, and he, he keeps using this word, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. I'm trying to describe it for you. What he's really telling us is at the base of this throne is this expanse of shining, brilliant crystal, and very similar to what Moses and the elders saw. Look with me on the screen one more time, Exodus 24, 10, and they, the elders, saw the God of Israel under his feet. There appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. And then you got this really weird thing going on, these four living creatures, and it sounds like God's got pets at the throne. But that's not what it is. In the Greek language, it's the word zao, and it simply means fast. They're moving very, very quickly, but we're told they've got this imagery here of a lion and a man and an eagle, and it kind of blows my mind to think that even before God created us on earth, he's at his throne, has the image of a man at his throne? That one makes my mind swim. Go forward with me, verse 8, part 8, it says, And the four living creatures, each one of them, having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And I want to bear down on the six wings part for just a minute. Each one of them having six wings. This is really consistent with Isaiah 6. I told you there's going to be a lot of verses. Well, look with me at Isaiah 6, too, what Isaiah wrote in the Old Testament. With two, they cover their faces. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they flew. Why would they cover their face? Because even the highest of God's created order can't look upon his glory. They have to cover their face because they're in the presence of God. But see here what they're doing back in Revelation 4, verse 8. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. You've got this three-phrase repetition going on. Holy, holy, holy. There's really something important to understand here. In the ancient Greek world and in the Hebrew world, a two-word repetition, that was to add emphasis. And so you find Jesus saying things like, verily, verily, or truly, truly, which means pay attention, but a threefold repetition. It's extraordinarily rare. It's never used unless it's in reference to God, and here you find it in reference to God's holiness, a threefold repetition of holy, 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 and it's because of the unlimited holiness of God that's being felt by everyone in his presence, and it's antiphonal. What do I mean by that? 
Antiphonal means like when you've gone to a sporting event and you've been present at a sporting event and you've heard someone shout out a response and they expect someone on the other side of the auditorium to respond in kind. Like if I said, go green. Okay, college group represented over here. Got that? Okay, so that's antiphonal. How about if we do this, and I'm gonna give you a chance to participate in antiphonal praise. We're not gonna do go green, go white. Okay, what we're gonna do is holy, holy, holy. So let's divide down the middle and we're gonna make this the first group and this the second group. And so second group, when you hear the first group respond holy, 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 you respond in kind. That's antiphonal praise. So on three, and really belt it out because the nine o'clock crowd, I had to stop them partway through and tell them to start over again, okay? Okay, here we go. One, two, three. One more time. You begin getting a sense of antiphonal praise. And John writes, these four who look like a lion and look like an eagle and look like a man, and they're at the base of it and they never stop doing this, meaning they were created for that purpose. And they're at the base of the throne, which means that's the highest privilege They get the first right to declare who God is and they get to declare his nature and it's being felt by everybody in his presence and the scene culminates as the four before the throne do this holy, holy, holy back and forth and then the angels respond according to Isaiah flying in heaven and they begin shouting it back and forth and watch what they do in verse 11. It says this, Revelation 4, 11, worthy are you our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created back up mentally to where you were three weeks ago when we were looking at John 1 and we were talking about the beginnings of Jesus when God the Son condescended to become Jesus the man and we discovered that everything that has been created was created by him for him and through him And now we just see in verse 11, for you created all things. Who are they talking about here? They're talking about God the Son. God the Son on the throne. And this is not a mechanical action of holy, holy, holy. Never read it that way. They're declaring worship because they're discovering new and awesome aspects of God. So think about the question that the leaders of Israel asked Jesus when they said, Who gave you authority? Where does your authority emanate from? Well, let me ask you a question about John. Jesus is not going to condescend to give them such a simple response when they're not even prepared to hear it because he knows where his authority comes from. It emanates from this dazzlingly brilliant light refracting and shining as though it's through jewels in a manner far beyond our ability to describe. And he's surrounded by thunder and lightning and worship and praise and declaration of holy, holy, holy are you and you're worthy to receive glory and honor and praise. See, what we're doing here is we're really learning who Jesus is. And when you do, You won't sing, our God reigns the same way. Our God reigns, and he reigns on high, and not just over North Korea, not just over the United States, but over every single thing that goes on on this planet. 
Uh, Let's link that together very briefly with Revelation 19. Just for a moment, bear with me. Revelation 19, verse 11, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. So John starts out again by saying, I saw, and it's the word harao, and it's the last word in your, in your notes this morning for the Greek language, and it literally means to be dumbfounded. So he's captivated, literally mesmerized. And he's not going wild this time. He's saying, I'm just staring at this thing. He's mesmerized because he's looking at future events. Heaven's opened, we're told, in verse 11. That means the gates of the massive city have spread wide, and this magnificent white stallion steps forward. And it bows in submission as the great conqueror mounts on his stallion. And this is the picture I have in my mind when Michael leads us into worship and we begin singing about Jesus on his throne. That's the picture I have. Is this one who rides this great white stallion. So outrides this king of kings and his destination is planet earth. And Jesus spoke of this very moment in time. Look with me on the screen. Matthew 24, 31, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So you got this white horse and you got this one who's sitting on it and he's called faithful and true because Jesus is God and he's always faithful to do what he says he will do. He's always true If he says he will forgive, he will forgive. Because he's God, he can't not be that way. So we're told this in Revelation 19.11. In righteousness, he judges. He's not just faithful and true. He judges. Because he does what he says, he must judge. Jesus has to be the judge. He came as the Savior, He returns as the judge. The first coming, he came as the baby in the manger, grew up as a man to save the world. The second coming is all about him returning as a judge. It's really hard to get that in our mind, that imagery of Jesus that way, because you and I, we live in an age of grace. We live during the period of time where God's forgiveness is long-suffering. He's incredibly merciful, incredibly forgiving, But justice and corruption can't exist together forever. So we're told in righteousness he will deliver verdicts. For verdicts to be delivered absolutely righteous and just, you have to have a righteous and just judge. If you're going to stand before him one day, and we all will, we're told it's appointed unto us all once to die, and then comes the judgment, you'd want to know that that judge is going to be incredibly fair. And that he's going to render verdicts that are adjudicated fairly. Well, we're not familiar with that in our planet. Our judges on this planet do the best they can with the information they have available to them. But we're not God. God has all the information. So therefore, he can adjudicate fairly. Look what Scripture says about his judgment. Deuteronomy 32.4. His work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice Righteous and upright is he. I love that. Because when he says, I've forgiven you and I see you as justified, 
That means you're gonna stand if you're a believer in Jesus one day when he says to you as the judge of all the earth, you're forgiven. I don't judge you. Welcome on into the kingdom that I've prepared for you. If you believe in me, I'm the one that's gonna welcome you in. So nothing compels God to act justly. Justice is his nature. It's who he is. In closing, there's a few things in your notes I wanted you to see this morning that I'm gonna put on the screen in order for you to really appreciate this judge and what he can do to judge fairly, to deliver indisputable verdicts. First of all, here's the first one. It requires an infallible judge. Next one, it requires a comprehensive knowledge of all the details. It requires a comprehensive knowledge of the law. It requires laws that are unquestionable. And then it requires the authority to back up the verdict. All those things are true of God. So now Psalm 9-7 says this about God. The Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. Amen. I love that. I want to know that he's equitable. So this one who's sitting on the throne, surrounded by all this amazing beauty, he is eternally almighty God the Son, the same one that's described in Revelation chapter 4, the same one that John writes in John 1.1, and the Bible teaches that Jesus is the one who is our judge. Jesus said this himself. In John chapter 5, look at what he describes himself as. John 5.22, not even the Father judges anyone but he has given all judgment to the Son. Revelation 19 ends with telling us that he's got these eyes that are a flame of fire, meaning there's nothing that he can't see. Everything about your life he knows, even to the deepest, most secret chamber of your heart that you think might be hidden. God says it's open and laid bare to me. Hebrews 4.13, all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Uh, that might make us feel like, oh man, I don't want those things known. We can't hide things from God, but how great is that, that God knows those things, and he says, I forgive you anyway. I forgive you of all those things. I don't hold those things against you. And here's how John ends it. Revelation 19, 13. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. That should immediately make you think of where we were three weeks ago. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. That's the Word of God that you just read about there. That's His name. That's Jesus. He's in the beginning with God. He's there at the end. He's the judge. He sits on the throne, and the writer's name is the Word of God. It's the Lord Jesus. It says this in verse 15, from His mouth comes a sharp sword. So with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. So this same king only has to speak and his word devours his enemies and his sword is the word of God. So the king of the universe is a warrior. Don't reduce him to less than he is. He is savior. He is forgiving. But he's also the warrior of heaven, and don't reduce him to less than he is. So verse 18, 16 ends this way. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now you have an elevated view of what a king really is, what one who has authority really can do. And when you learn who Jesus really is, not who you want him to be, but who he really is, it'll change how you love 
It'll change how you see your neighbors. It'll change how you see yourself. It'll change how you work. It'll change how you function day in and day out. Because you and I, we make promises that we can't keep. We do it all the time. God does not lie. He is incapable of lying, Hebrews 6, 18. It is impossible for God to lie. So when he says, I will forgive you, do you believe this morning, church, that he will forgive you? Because he can't lie. When he says things are going to be unimaginably better for you, I'm here to tell you today, things are going to be fantastic beyond your imagination. Your eye, your ear hasn't begun to see or hear the things that are in store for you according to Scripture. At New Hope, we teach what you believe about God determines what you do next. Well, Jesus kind of puts an exclamation point on that thought because here's what he says about everything you've just read. John 8, 24. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I don't know about you. I don't know where you stand. I know where some of you stand on this issue, but I personally, I believe that you agree with me. I believe this very one who relinquished his throne and condescended to become Jesus the man. I believe that this very one who conquered my sin on the cross, I believe that this very one who conquered death, I believe this very one is coming back again one day. He's coming back for those who belong to him. And he's coming back to judge those who do not. And he has all authority in heaven and earth to save you and keep you and protect you for all eternity. That's one who's worthy of saying, you reign, you reign, you reign. The Bible's very, very clear that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that anyone who would believe in him, he would make sure you won't perish, but that you would have everlasting life. If you've never prayed to God to receive that offer that he's made to you, I would be honored to meet with you after the service. I'll be up here and, and we can talk. I'd be thrilled to walk you through it to show you how you can receive that yourself. But right now, I'm just gonna ask all the rest of us, would you pray together with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth that you've revealed this morning. Some of us just needed to be reminded and others this is new information for. God, affect us, cause us to leave here this morning changed, not unchanged. That we would go out the door this afternoon and we would behave differently because we've been reminded again who you are, what you came from in order to save us and where you're at now. Thank you for the gift of salvation. We, we just can't even begin to scratch how grateful we are. You've given us eternity and we're left without words to fully express that. So we just say to you, you are holy and you are righteous. You are just and we don't deserve it, so thank you for your grace. We praise you in the matchless name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.